we are going to be in one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, in Psalm 51. I wish we had hours to walk through it very slowly. We're going to end on time, so don't get worried. But I uh, just want to pull a few things out of here. I want us to look at it, talk a little bit about it, and uh, hopefully be able to encourage us tonight from God's Word. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to jump into it. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for this psalm that David wrote. And Lord, when he wrote it, he was in a place in his life where he was under heavy conviction. Lord, uh, you just see his love for you come out. And Lord, I just pray tonight that you would speak directly to our hearts. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I, I, I've got to share this, just a couple of really cool things. Uh, one of the guys over here at uh, Table 6 had shared with his guys a few weeks ago. He was looking for a job. The guys prayed over him uh, a few weeks ago, and Monday started a new job. So can we get an amen for what God did over here? Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. That, that is, it, it's, it's, it's incredible when God does things. Um, I had lunch with another guy in the last couple weeks, and he shared with me that uh, last semester we had gone through total forgiveness, that he was just able to release some things that he had struggled with for a while. And I thought back to when we were going through total forgiveness, I thought back in my own life, and I thought, you know what? I'm so glad that you reminded me of God's faithfulness because I walked away from that lunch being thankful for what God had done in his life, but was also reminded as I look back that God had released me from some things as well. And I just thought, Lord, you're still working. And I'm so thankful that he's still working. And so tonight as we look at Psalm 51, um, I just, I don't know exactly when this was written. You know, I, it makes me wonder if, and, and I, I've read a whole bunch of commentaries on this thing, and different scholars say different things. You know, some think that Nathan confronted David, and David pinned this that night. Some think that Nathan confronted David, and months down the road, as David had worked through some things and thought through some things, David pinned it. I don't know when he pinned it, but what I do know is when I read it, first of all, it's so beautifully written. I mean, the, the whole thing just flows together. It's a beautifully written passage. But secondly, I just think you really get a, a picture of David's heart. From the language he uses to the tone he uses, you really get a sense from him that he is really broken. And you get to the end of Psalm 51, and he even says, God, you do not desire a sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You desire a broken spirit. And I, I want to say this to you, I believe God has to take us all to a place where he breaks us of who we are so that he can begin, to doing, to begin doing in our lives what he wants to do. And I don't know if God's taking you to that place before. I've been to that place. I know where that place is. I've been to that place a couple times in my life where God has had to break me of something, and it's, all, it's usually not pleasant. It's usually not comfortable. It's usually a difficult process, and it is a process. You think about sanctification. When we get saved, we, that word is justification. Someone once said it's just as if you never sinned. That's what justification is. Sanctification is the process after you get saved of becoming more like Jesus and prayerfully over the course of every day, every hour, every moment, we're becoming more like Jesus. But that sanctification process is a process. And then one day there'll be a glorification process when Jesus Christ takes us home. And amen, you and I will never sin again. We'll never experience pain. We'll never experience grief. We'll never experience any of those things ever again. I'm so thankful for that. But that sanctification process oftentimes is a very painful process. Oftentimes it's a very slow process. 
And I think about David in this situation. David has sinned a big sin. One commentator said this. He said, David sinned a big sin, but he repented big as well. And he said this. He said, it is a process that took David down a road he never desired to go down. And this commentator said this. He said, it's interesting. If David would have had any idea beforehand what road he would have gone down, I doubt he would have made that decision again. But you know what? God thankfully can use some of the darkest moments in our lives to make us more like him. And so I just want us to see this. I shared this quote with you a few weeks ago, and I want to put it up on the screen one more time because it's one of my favorite quotes, and it talks about Psalm 51. It says, you cannot have a Proverbs 31 woman in an, in an Ephesians 5 marriage with Deuteronomy 6 children until you become a Psalm 51 man. I love this quote because these are things that we want to have. We want to have a Proverbs 31 wife. We want to have a marriage that looks like the marriage that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. We want our children to grow up and love God with all of their hearts. But a lot of times we don't want to get in a place where God's going to use us to implement those things in the rest of our family. And so God sometimes has to take you and I to a very difficult place. And David ends up going to a difficult place. Now, partly because David made a really foolish decision. And he sinned. And he sinned not once. He sinned multiple times. So let's start right here in Psalm 51. We're going to look at the first two verses right up front. It says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Now there's a couple of imperative statements that David makes within the context of these two verses that I want us to see. David has a very clear understanding that he has sinned and he has sinned greatly. And I want you to listen to him. Look at this first one. It is be gracious. He is telling the Lord, Lord, you are about to take me to the woodshed and I know it's coming. Now, a few weeks ago, my youngest son did something he was not supposed to. And his mother told him that his father was going to deal with him when he got home. Now, Mark, you know Josiah. He's a wild man, okay? And believe me, he gets a lot of these. And so when I got home, he was already sitting in the little recliner in our bedroom that's right beside our bed. It's where my wife does her quiet time, and it's right there. And they go and sit in that, and they await their discipline. And when I came in, and I walked in the door, I kissed my wife, told the other three kids, hey, I went in the bedroom, I closed the door, and he said, Dad, be nice to me. He knew exactly what was coming because what he had done was wrong and he knew it. And so I asked him three times, why did you do that? You hurt your sister. And he kept saying, I don't know. I said, well, I need a better response than that. And it was like the Lord said, that's your response to me most of the time. Why did you do that? I don't know. I just did it. David, why did you do this? I don't know. And so he comes to the Lord. And he's in this place where there is probably some fear in David's heart. Because he understands he's already heard from Nathan that his son is not going to live. But he also knows that there are other consequences when we deal with sin. How many of you know that consequences sometimes don't just come with one consequence? Sometimes there's a lot of consequences. And I found this out when I was a young boy. I was probably seven or eight years old. And I told a lie in the driveway of our house on Del White Street in Bentonville, Arkansas. I could take you to the spot I was standing on when I told the boy Jesse that lived across the street from me a lie. Well, he took that lie, and what I didn't know is he knew it was a lie. But he spread that lie around. And when I got caught, I got whipped pretty good. And then I had to go across the street, and I had to tell Jesse that it was a lie. 
When I told Jesse, he said, yeah, I knew it was a lie, but I thought since you did it, I could get away with it too. And so I told the lie as well. Well, his mother was in the other room. She came in there, and Jesse got the what for as well. She said, just because he didn't, doesn't mean you have to do it. And what I realized was there were consequences, not just in my own life, but also in the life of Jesse. And so there are major consequences. So he tells the Lord, you, 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 listen to this. Sometimes I think we're afraid to share our feelings with the Lord and what we're really going through because we're afraid of how they sound. We're afraid of becoming transparent. We're afraid he doesn't want to listen. Here's the deal. God is big enough to take whatever you throw at him. He's big enough for it. I'll be honest with you. When Tim Shelton passed away, there were some things I said to the Lord that were harsh. And I struggled. And there's some things I'm still working through in my life. But you know what? God is big enough for those things because he tells us to cast all our cares upon him. He desires for you to draw close to him. I don't understand it, but I'm going to keep asking questions. And I'm going to keep relying on the Lord. So David starts out, he says, be gracious. Be gracious, Lord. Second thing he says is blot out. So he's, he's specifically telling the Lord what he desires for the Lord to do in his life. I want you to be gracious to me, but I also want you to blot out my sin. So in other words, this would be like me walking into the bedroom with Josiah sitting in the chair and Josiah saying, listen, Dad, will you forgive me without disciplining me? I mean, that's kind of what he's asking for right here. I want you to blot out my sin, but please be gracious. And then he says, what? Wash away. Not only do I want you to blot them out, not only do I want you to remove the sins, I want you to wash them away. What does Jesus tell us? That he forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west. He will wash us as white as snow. And I love that. And so he asks the Lord, he he doesn't really ask the Lord, he says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Notice there's a period at the end of the sentence. It's not a question. It's It's not really even a request. It's an imperative statement. This is what I am asking you to do. And then lastly, he says, and cleanse. I want you to cleanse me. Now, there's different words in the Hebrew that are used here. They each have different definitions, and they kind of work piece by piece by piece together, but they're essentially talking about different pieces of this. He's asking him to cleanse his mind. He's asking him to wash his heart. He's asking him to remove this from his slate, if you will. So he's really asking for just a complete, clean slate of what he's done in his past, and he's really telling the Lord, Lord, I need your complete forgiveness. I need your, last semester we talked about total forgiveness, that total forgiveness that you and I can give to somebody else. What David is asking for is for total forgiveness from the Lord. And so the first thing I want us to see tonight is we need to recognize a need for forgiveness. David recognized his need to go before a holy God and that he needed his forgiveness. You and I have no option to spend an eternity in heaven with a holy God without his total forgiveness. You and I have no option to work our way to heaven. We have no option for our good to outweigh our bad. Our only option is to experience total forgiveness from the Lord God himself. You and I need the same thing David needed. We need him to totally blot out, cleanse, wash away, and forgive every single thing we have. And let me just say this. He is a gracious God. Because if you and I got half, forget it, if we got a tenth of what we really deserved, we'd be in really bad shape. He's a very gracious God. But we need to recognize a need for forgiveness. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday who's big into apologetics. And he was sharing with me that he was sharing the gospel with somebody this past week. 
and when he got to the end of it, the guy said to him, he said, listen, hey, two things. Number one, I don't believe the Bible's true. And number two, I don't believe what you just shared with me is something that I need. Now, I'm glad it works for you, and I'm glad that it's your truth, but that's not my truth. That doesn't work for me. And so this guy and I were just talking back and forth yesterday. He's like, you know, I'm trying to figure out and understand what is the next step in this gospel presentation to this gentleman. If he doesn't believe the Bible's true, what, where do I go from here? And so we're just praying for this guy. He does not understand he is in desperate need of forgiveness. You see, you can't get somebody saved until they know they're lost. You and I won't stop and ask for directions until we get really, really lost, right? My wife will say, just stop and ask somebody. Just call somebody. Just text somebody. Just ask somebody for the address. I know, baby. I've been there. I can get us there. Now, I'll be honest with you. I can barely get back to my own office. I don't know why I would ever believe I could find my way to somebody. But that's pride. And this guy was not at a place where he understood he had a need for forgiveness. David has reached a place. Now, what's interesting is, and what we would hope that would have happened is, is that David would have reached this conclusion by the conviction of the Spirit in his life. But it took somebody else confronting him. And sometimes people look down on David and say, well, David needed somebody else to call that sin out. You know, we all need somebody else to call that sin out. We've got a lot of blind spots in our lives, and we need people to hold us accountable. But the reality is, David came to a place where he understood he was in complete need of forgiveness from the Lord. Look at verse 3. It says, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. I want you to stop and think about the ramifications of his sin. When I was a little boy, if my parents told me we were going to my grandparents' house or if we were going to go up to, we used to, uh, when I was really young, we had tickets to Silver Dollar City in Branson. Now, we only lived about an hour and 45 minutes from Branson when I was grew up in northwest Arkansas. And so if my parents would tell me that, they figured out after a while they couldn't tell me too far in advance. Because if they told me a month in advance, I wouldn't hardly sleep. I wouldn't hardly eat. I'd be so excited because those emotions would just well up inside of me. And what I found was is they would start telling me two or three days in advance, and then they quit doing that. They started just telling me the morning of. I'd wake up, they'd say, pack your bag, we're going to Silver Dollar City. Because they couldn't handle it anymore. I found the reverse of that to be true as well. I got a report card at school when I was about eight years old, and there was a, a D on it. Now, that's not a, a good D. You know, when you get to college and you're on your own, if you get a D, you deal with it as an adult. When you're an eight-year-old, you are scared to death to take that report card home. And I put it in my backpack, and it was not due until Monday. This was a Friday. It had to be signed by a parent and brought back. My decision was I wasn't going to show it to my parents until Monday morning as I was walking out the door. Right? Get them to sign it quick. Maybe they'll glance over, not see the D. We'll move right past this thing. But you understand what that weekend was like for me, right? Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, all I could think about was that I was going to have to hand this to my parents and what were going to be the consequence. And I was literally sick to my stomach all weekend. Couldn't eat, ended up going to a birthday party of one of my best friends, didn't enjoy any of it, just couldn't wait till Monday morning because it was eating at me. Can you imagine what was going through David's mind? Can you imagine what was going through his heart. Can you imagine? It says, notice here, it says, and my sin is always before me. It's always before me. I had an opportunity a few years ago, probably six or seven years ago, to drive down to Bricky's prison in Bricky's, Arkansas, and preach with a couple gentlemen here from the church. 
And my very first time to go there about 10 years ago, I went with Phil Weatherwax. Now, Phil Weatherwax is a big old man. Anybody know Phil in here? He, he's, he, he is just a man's man. And Phil told me on the way down there, because it's a pretty long drive, he said, now listen, when you get in the prison, don't hug anybody. Don't shake their hands. You know, you don't touch them. You know, you kind of keep your distance, and it's, and it's just, you just, you just give them respect. I said, okay. I was scared to death. He's telling me, you know, we're going to go in here. They're going to just lock the door, and we're going to be okay. God's going to go before us. But there's some pretty bad dudes in there. Well, we get in the room. They lock the door. We're in this chapel. About 100 men walk through the door, and Phil just starts hugging every one of them. And I'm like, I, I thought we weren't. You know, I thought we weren't going to do this. And, and so I start talking to this guy. I said, but I do want you to have conversations with these guys before you preach. So I sit down and I start talking to this guy. And I said, sir, do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, not at all. I said, do you mind if I ask you how long you've been here? And he said, well, I've been in prison about 30 years. He said, I've been at this one for about 20. And I said, well, sir, do you mind if I ask you why you're in here? He said, I don't mind at all. He said, I've killed a few people. And he said, not only was I convicted of that, he said, I actually did it. And he said, but you know what happened to me? One of the best things that ever happened to me, he said, some men started coming here and sharing the gospel. And he said, I got saved. And he said, they gave me the opportunity after a few years to get online and to take classes at Liberty Seminary up in Lynchburg, Virginia. And he said, a couple years ago, I graduated with a degree in theology. And he said, I teach Bible here at the prison. And he said, I know for a fact God has placed me right here in this spot. I was blown away. I said, sir, can I ask you another question? He said, absolutely. I said, how have you worked through all of the things that you did in your past? And this is what he said. He said, I know for a fact that my great God has forgiven me unbelievably. And he's forgiven me, his exact words, as far as the east is from the west. And the Lord has forgotten those things because he said, it has been washed underneath the blood. And when God the Father looks through God the Son's blood at me, he sees a pure white heart. And I said, wow. He said, but I will tell you this. He said, there's not a morning I wake up. There's not a morning I go to bed where I don't think about the things that I did. This is a man that got it. He had been saved, but he still struggled because that sin was always before him. David says, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Here's what had happened in David's life. He had identified the sin. He had identified the sin. We as men, first of all, have to recognize that we are in need of forgiveness. The second thing we have to do is that forgiveness is not for us just at salvation. We need his forgiveness today. We're going to need his forgiveness tomorrow because I don't know about you, but I keep sinning. Now, prayerfully, I'm getting better at it. Prayerfully, I'm not sinning as much, but the reality is I'm still going to sin, and I'm still going to be in desperate need of my father's forgiveness. But one of the ways we get to that forgiveness is identifying the sin. David had come to a place, and we'll see it as we walk through the imagery of how he uses all the language in here to talk about it. But this is what he has said. He has identified his sin. He understands he's in need of forgiveness, but he also understands what he did. I slept with a woman that wasn't my wife. I had her husband killed, and then I covered it up with lies and deception. I mean, the list goes on and on of all the different sins that he committed. And he had identified those. Now, it took somebody else speaking into his life for God to really open up his eyes to see those things. But this is what I want to say to you. As men, one of our jobs 
is to be clean and holy before the Lord. So that as men, we can go into our homes and we can lead our wives and children or wherever God has placed us as godly men. But here's the deal. It is very difficult to go lead as a godly man should when we're not pure before the Lord. It's very difficult. As a matter of fact, it's impossible. And so we need to identify what sin is in our lives. So here's what I want us to do. Around the table, someone, someone take a piece of paper or something and write these down. But what, what I want you to do, I want you to identify sins that men deal with in today's culture. Now, this is going to be a long list. You're not going to get all of them put down. But I just want you as fast as you can, put as many of them down as you can. And I want us to get a good look at how many different ways the devil is coming after us. And I want us to identify sin. Not necessarily in your life, just in general, what are the sins that the devil is throwing at us, or the temptations the devil is throwing at us, and the sin that men deal with in today's culture? All right, so take a few minutes. Let's do that, and then we'll come back together. All right, guys. I would imagine if we passed the microphone around, there would be a lot of crossover with the tables on sins that, that this table wrote down, or a lot of the sins that this table There would have been a lot of crossover. A lot of you probably put down a lot of the same things. And we could take a lot of time and probably list out all kinds of sins that men struggle with. But I want you to, I want you to listen to this. The, the statistics of men that actually read the Bible are almost non-existent. It's really sad. The, the, the percentage of men that read the Bible on a daily basis is very, very small. The percentage of men that have ever read the Bible through completely is very, very, very small. And they've done a lot of studies on why, why is that? Is it the busyness? And what they found in their surveys are a few different things. One of those are busyness. One of those is laziness. One of those is just it's low on the priority list. But I'll be honest with you. I, I don't think those are the reasons. I, I think one of the main reasons that men don't like to read the Bible is very similar to what happened when, when Nathan approached David. When Nathan came to David, he did not look at David and tell David what he had done wrong. He gave him a parable. And it was as if David was looking in a mirror. And it showed him the imperfection in his life. And I think oftentimes men don't like to read the Bible because it shows us who we really are. But here's the difference in why I think we should. Because it's not about who we are. It's about who he is. And if we skip over spending time in the Word because we're afraid of what God may show us about ourselves, what we're really missing is the beautiful picture that's woven all throughout Scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation that God is a God of redemption, that God loves you, He cares about you. And if God can use David, God can use you. If God can use that man that's spending life in prison that killed multiple people and now he's discipling and leading men to the Lord in the prison, I praise God for that guy. I'm so thankful for that man that God had got a hold of his life and how God is still using him. I am pretty sure if God can use men like that, he can use us in this room. And so I would encourage you, we can look at all these sins and we can circle ones that we struggle with and all that stuff, but the reality is we need to get in here and let God help us identify what those things are and then teach us how to remove those out of our lives. David is begging for the Lord to blot out his sin. Look at verse four. It says, against you, 
and you alone, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. Now, very interesting. Because if you think about it, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against her husband, and I was fascinated as I read different commentators, uh, different commentaries, uh, what they said, how the reason they said it is David said it this way. But the reality is, when we sin, we do sin against people, but we sin against a holy God who set that in place. God is the one who is the God of truth. He is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So you and I cannot sin against another human being without sinning against God. You can't do that. And so he has recognized, yes, I've sinned against them, but God, I have sinned against you. He says, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. I love it when he says, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. I was sharing the gospel with a guy about a year ago. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm taking... um, I'm working on a Master's of Divinity right across the street at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, I do all my school online, but I'm taking it all through them. And one of the criteria to be in school over there is, is two things, obviously doing your school and all that stuff, but there's two other things. You have to go to chapel each week. they got two chapels, and so I, I watch those online and then report back that I've watched them. One of the other things you have to do is you have to share the gospel with at least two people every week. And so I've been doing this now for about three years. Now, I'll be honest with you, I... I the first semester I did, I thought, this is great. I've got accountability. I'm going to share the gospel. I got to the end of the semester, Brian, and I was getting ready in the end of the semester, and I was like, I'm going in my summer. I'm not going to take classes, but I'm going to keep sharing the gospel every week. You know how many people shared the gospel with that summer? That's a goose egg. I, I didn't have that accountability. So the next semester, same thing. I kept sharing the gospel. So the Lord has really impressed upon me to share the gospel with people. So I'm sharing the gospel with this guy at the gas pump. I have found the best place to share the gospel with people is at the gas pump. They're not going anywhere, guys. They're right there. You've got them. Okay, you've got them. And I've even gone, kind of slowly worked my way into pumping so that the guy that's just finishing up can get out of there so the next person can come so that we got a long time together, okay? I got a big old gas tank. I can keep him there a long time, okay? And I've also found that, you know, you could set that little, the little clicker, you know, to, to hold your gas, put it on the, the slowest one, all right? You get more time, okay? You get more time with them, okay? They're right there. So I'm sharing the gospel. I'm at Sam's. I'm sharing the gospel with this guy. And this guy says to me, he says, hey, listen, he said, you're telling me that God's a loving God, and at the same time, you're telling me God's going to send me to hell. He said, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I said, you have missed it, brother. You have missed it. I said, God is not going to send you to hell. You are sending yourself to hell. God has created you. He loves you. He cares for you. And he said, this is the standard. You have not met that standard, and therefore, your consequence is hell. But he's not sending you there. Your sin is sending you there. And notice what David says. He said, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. People want to blame God for all kinds of things. You cannot blame God for the sins that you have in your life. He said, I was guilty when I was born. He, he knows that from the moment he was born, it's been passed through us. It started with Adam and Eve, and it's just keep on going. The only person that never sinned is Jesus. And so he says, surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. 
We recognize the need for forgiveness. We identify our sin, and then you confess your sin. What is he doing here? He's just confessing, God, I know that I have sinned. Now, I learned this. I've been married 15 years. July 12th, I was married 15 years, okay? I figured this out about two years into marriage. I wish I'd have figured it out sooner. But I figured about two years in marriage, okay, that when I mess up and we have an argument, and then we kind of work through that argument that the only way we're going to get past it is if I let her know that I know what I did was wrong. I have to look her in the eyes if I messed up and say, listen, I messed up. And she'll say, uh-huh, how'd you mess up? You better know how you messed up. Because if not, it's not going to go well for you. It's going to be one of those things where I'm not going to tell you, you know. And so I found that what I have to do is I have to say to her, I am sorry for this. Because what it does, she already knows what I did. She wants to know that I know what she did, and vice versa. This is not a one-way street. Same thing for her. We, we figured this out about year two in our marriage. And we would say to each other when we kind of, hey, listen, this is what I said. I am sorry. I realize that I'm wrong. This is what David is saying to the Lord. The Lord already knew he was wrong. Do you remember when God went to the garden where Adam and Eve was there right after they had sinned? And God says, Adam, where are you, buddy? God knew where he was. There's no place we can go in on this earth and hide from God. There's nowhere we can go in this universe and hide from God. He knows where we are, and he sees the heart. What did he tell Samuel when Samuel was going to anoint David? He said, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So God knows everything we've done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought. He knows it, so you and I can't keep it and hide it from us. But he certainly wants to know that you know what you did was wrong. And so David's confessing his sin. Brother Steve says, don't bunch them, fess them as you does them. He says, confess your sin as you do them. Don't bunch them up, get to the end of the day and say, Father, forgive me for all the sins I committed against you today. Don't do that. Here's what I found growing up and praying prayers like that. I would keep committing the same sins over and over and over and over. But when I started calling those sins out one by one, it began changing things. When I started working at Bellevue Baptist Church, I was 21 years old. It was March 5th, I think, 2006. I started working in this office right here. Scotty Shaw sat in that office right there. And Brother Scotty and I and a couple guys would meet each week. And about three months into working there, we came in one day, and Scotty started to share something from the Bible, and he just began weeping. And I'll be honest with you, I hadn't seen a lot of men weep. And he began weeping, and he said, guys... I want you to understand, there doesn't need to be any hidden sin in your lives. You need to confess those things. You need to ask the Lord to bring those to the forefront of your mind. And then you need to confess those things one by one by one. And it changed my life. Because I went home and I got a piece of paper as a 21-year-old guy, and I started writing all those things down, and I started confessing to the Lord, and I started weeping before the Lord. Because you know what happens when you get to the end of the day and you say, Father, forgive me for all the sins I committed today? It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But you start confessing them one by one and you realize that you had to pray 353 times that day, it starts to put into perspective your heart. It starts to put into perspective who you are. You begin to start asking the Lord to change you. So David is confessing his sin. He's telling the Lord, I'm sorry, and he's confessing those sins. He says, verse 7, and I love, I, I just love the language he uses. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. 
Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins. Blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now listen, listen to his language here. What does he say at the end of verse 11? Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Now, why do you think this is so key? Because David had witnessed God doing this very thing in Saul's life. Do you remember it said that the Spirit of God left Saul and God sent a tormenting spirit to torment Saul? David had witnessed with his own eyes the king of Israel who was leading as a fierce man, as a godly man at one time walk away from the Lord, and the Lord removed his spirit, and he saw exactly the man that Saul had become. He saw exactly the way Saul was living. He was actually running from Saul because Saul was threatening to kill him. He saw what Saul had turned into because of the sin that Saul had in his life, and David desperately did not want the spirit of God to leave him. Guys, I, 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 listen, when we get saved, Jesus said he sends the helper, the Holy Spirit, to leave inside of us. You and I cannot lose our salvation. Now, there are denominations out there that will teach you can. And I believe there is scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture that will stand against that. When you get saved, when you truly get saved, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, you have the Holy Spirit. But I, I just wonder how many of us have ever got to a place where we're so eaten up with our sin. It is such a big deal in our life. It has so sickened us that we've come to a place where we're praying prayers like this. This is a very serious thing. Not just because of how big his sin was, but because he had sinned against the holy God. And so he comes to this place and he says, don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. The fourth thing I think we see here is to ask to be forgiven. You see, it's one thing to confess your sin. When I went in there a few weeks ago to that bedroom with Josiah, my, at the time, nine-year-old, he's now 10, but at the time he was nine, he was sitting on that little recliner. And I said, what did you do? Why are you in here? And he shared with me what he had done. He confessed his sin, right? He confessed what he had done against his sister. And I had asked multiple times, well, you know, why did you do that? We're trying to work through it and all that stuff. And he knows he's getting ready to get a spank, and he understands that's coming. But I always want them to understand what they did was wrong before I spanked them. For two reasons. One, I need them to understand why they're getting disciplined. The point of discipline is to bring them through that so that they don't do that again. But also, it's allowing me to work through it so that I don't discipline him in anger. And listen, I don't need to discipline them in anger. I need to work through that. And so I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to him. And I said, buddy, I just don't understand why you do this. We've ha we have these conversations all the time to keep your hands to yourself, to be sweet and kind, to be loving, to be caring, that your sisters, the Bible says, are a weaker vessel, the female. People don't like to hear this stuff anymore. People don't like to talk about this stuff in our culture. Ladies are the weaker vessel. It doesn't mean that they mentally and that, that they can't lead and all those things, but physically they cannot walk up and pick up the same amount of weight as you. They can't do it. They're the weaker vessel physically. And so we're talking through that, and I'm sharing with them what the Bible says about that and how we're to be their protectors and all of those things. And we got to the end. I said, do you understand? He said, yes. And he said, I already told you I was wrong. And I said, I understand that, buddy. I said, I just don't want you to do it again. I want to help you so that you don't make this mistake again because it's a sin. He said, I understand. And so when I spanked him, 
And boy, when I spank him, he, you know, he plays basketball. They all play basketball. His vertical is almost five inches, okay? I mean, that, that, the boy, just, he, he doesn't have it, okay? <laughs> the athleticism's just not there, okay? But when he gets a spanking, it's all of a sudden about 20 inches, okay? And that boy can hop. I mean, he can get up and down. He's jumping all around the bedroom. He's crying. All of a sudden, he kind of calms down. He sits down, and he walks over, and I always sit down in that recliner, and I just wait. I wait for them to get done crying. I wait for them to get done with all that, and he walks over to me, and this is what he said. He said, Dad will you forgive me? Oh, man. In that moment, I understood that he understood what he did was wrong. And he desired that he and I's relationship would be renewed and refreshed and that we wouldn't carry that on. And I said, of course I will forgive you. I forgave you already before I walked in the room because you're my son. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think you need to do anything else? And he said, I probably need to ask my sister for forgiveness too. And he walked out there and he said the same thing to her. And it was a beautiful picture of where David is in this place. He's done these horrible things, but he's come before a holy God and he desires to be forgiven. And then we get to verse 12. Verse 12 is an interesting verse. It says, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Restore the joy of your salvation. Do you know why I think oftentimes people walk around discouraged, defeated, and depressed even as believers? It's because they've lost their joy. And oftentimes the reason they have lost their joy is because they have unconfessed sin in their lives. See, he goes on to say in a couple verses later, it may even be the next verse, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he goes on to say, and then I will teach other people your ways. David is not even in a place where he can talk to people about the Lord because there's the vision between him, the, he and the Lord that needs to be restored. He needs to be restored to the Father. And he's come to a place where he's realized, I don't have joy because my sin is always before me. And he's saying, restore the joy of what? Your salvation. You and I, we, we can't fabricate joy. We can't create joy. We can't make joy. The only thing we can make is a couple moments of happiness. Like my buddy, who decided to build a custom-made F-150. It was beautiful, and it was $97,000. Now, he's in a different tax bracket than I am, okay? So that's not happening in my home. But he built it. He sent me pictures of the exterior. And he sent me pictures of the interior, and it was absolutely gorgeous. I said, it's the most beautiful truck I've ever seen. That was on a Friday when it was delivered to his home. On Monday, he sent me a new picture of where his boat trailer had come off the hitch while he was driving and put a hole right through the back of the tailgate. And this is what he said. His text was a picture. It said dot, dot, dot. That happiness didn't last very long. He said, I'm so angry right now at myself. And I thought to myself, as soon as he sent the picture, that's all we can create is a moment of happiness. David got with Bathsheba a moment of happiness, and that was it. And then after that, all of this, because true joy, joy can only come from the Lord. And that's the reason we look around our culture and we don't see joy. That's the reason when I got an opportunity to visit Kiev, uh, Ukraine years ago, 
and I was traveling with a group of missions guys from here at the church, and we went and and uh, partnered with FCA over there, and we played basketball games all around Kiev uh, for 10 days. And we were just sharing the gospel with people. I asked them, one of the missionaries about day five, I said, can I ask you a question? I said, everywhere we go, nobody smiles. There's, there's nobody smiling. And he said, Derek, if you understood the culture here, and you realize that there is, when I say no hope, there is zero hope. There's none. He said, you'll realize why there's no smiles. And we went to a church on that Sunday morning, a little bitty church. It's about 25 people in there. My friend Mike preached. And when we walked in, I experienced the joy of the Lord in a way I had not experienced before because for almost eight days, all we had seen were frowns and people that were walking around discouraged and depressed everywhere we went. And when I walked in that little church, I saw people that had changed lives and the joy of the Lord was literally present in their lives. And this is what David has come to. He's come to a place where he is so far from the joy of the Lord that he literally yearns for that. I don't know if you understand what yearning actually means, but I one time ran a half marathon. I know you don't believe that by looking at me, but I decided in college, I played at a basketball at a small college, and they were going to have a fundraiser in that town in Chattanooga for some, uh, it was a homeless charity. And so I said, well, I'm in great shape. I'm going to run the half marathon. That can't be a big deal, 13 miles. I mean, we run all the time. We practice six days a week. I'm in the best shape of my life. At that time, I had 1% body fat. Okay, I can, I can do this. This is no problem. I show up. I got my ankle braces on. I got my high top tennis shoes on for basketball. And we start running this thing. And it was the worst decision I've ever made in my entire life. There were people that were three times my size that finished well in advance as me. There were ladies that looked like they were 35, 40 years older than I am that finished before I was. There were moments where I thought I was going to die because I was not prepared whatsoever, and I didn't have anything prepared. I had no water bottles. I had no little snacks. I had nothing, and I got to a point at about uh, mile 11, there was no water stations left, and I literally thought I was going to die, and I told this guy that was with me, and by the way, he was, he was not even as smart as I was. He ran in pants and a long sleeve shirt. I thought he literally was going to die, and I looked at him, and I said, brother, right now, I am so thirsty. I don't know. It, I, 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 like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can make it five more steps, and he said, you know that verse that talks about yearning after the Lord? He said, I think for the first time in my life, I actually understand what it means to yearn for something. And man, the Lord just right there said to me, that's what I desire from you. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul pants for you. I was so thirsty. And this is what I believe he's missing. And he so desires, he says, restore the joy of your salvation to me. The fifth thing I want you to understand is that when we do those first four things, we can receive the joy of the Lord. You say, well, how do you do that? That's not necessarily something that you do. That's something that the Lord does. I'm going to tell you exactly how you do it. You recognize and you identify and you repent and you confess, and then you sit there in the presence of God, and you just let him restore your joy. 
There was a time in my life where I was discouraged and I was down and I was depressed. And a friend of mine took me to lunch and he shared a bunch of scripture with me and the Lord set me free from that. And I walked out and sat in my truck and I shed tear after tear after tear after tear because it was the first time in months that the joy of the Lord was resting in my life. And that's exactly where David wanted to be and he just sat back and he received it. So I want you to discuss this just for a few moments around the table. Why do so many Christians lack joy in their lives? Now, we talk a little bit about unconfessed sin in our lives, but I think there's some other reasons why people. Now, also, let me clarify what I mean by this. When I say Christians, nowadays that's a very loose term because we assume that anybody that darkens the door of a church on Sunday morning is a Christian. Billy Graham said there's a very small percentage of people that sit in a pew on Sunday mornings. As a matter of fact, he said 15%. He said 15% of people will probably be with the Lord in eternity. Now, I don't know what that number is, but I'm talking about people that call themselves Christians. You and I can't know if somebody's actually saved. We can see their fruit and all of those things, but the reality is there are great people in the world that do a lot of great things that are going to die and go to hell. I'm not being ugly. I'm not being judgmental. That's just reality. So I'm saying people that call themselves Christians, why is it that oftentimes they lack joy in their lives? Talk about it for a few minutes, and then we'll bring it back together. I've been talking a lot tonight. I had two more table discussion questions. I just looked down at the time, so I apologize for that. I want you to look at verse 13. It says, then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. So he says in verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me, and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. David is not even in a place prior to Psalm 51 where he can actually share the Lord with other people. He needs restoration between him and the Father to happen. He needs the Lord to restore joy back to him and give him a willing spirit to go out and share God's love with other people. And so I want us to see this and understand this together, and I found this to be so true in my life. Number six, share his forgiveness with everyone. Now, David wasn't going to share the gospel the way you and I are going to share the gospel because Jesus hadn't come to earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and all of those things yet. There, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming Christ. Everything in the New Testament, everything in the gospels is saying he has come. Everything after that is saying he's coming again, okay? So Old Testament is saying the Messiah is coming. The Gospels are saying he is here. Everything past that is saying he's coming again. You better get ready, okay? So David is in the confines of the Old Testament. When he's talking about sharing with other people, he's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about teaching people about the Lord and how sinners need to return back to the Lord. Can you imagine how prevalent sin was at this time when we read all about the Israelites, all about the evil things they did all throughout the years? We read in the Old Testament, it's like, good night, they did it again, and they did it again, and they did it again. And sometimes you're reading, you just slap your head, you're like, they just don't get it. And we do the same thing over and over and over and over. But David had reached a place where there was so much division between him, he wasn't going to go out and talk about the Lord. I talked to a guy just a couple weeks ago, and I asked him, hey, when's the last time you shared your, 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 uh, your testimony with somebody? When's the last time you told somebody what God has done in your life? He said, man, I'll be honest, it's probably been 10 years. 
And he said, I'm just not in a great spot right now. And I thought about David right here. David said, if you'll do this, Lord, then I will do this. How many of you, don't, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. How many of you ever, of y'all have made a, a deal with the Lord? Lord, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this. This is what David says. Lord, if you will restore this, if you'll forgive me, and if you'll restore your joy and that willing spirit inside of me, then I will go and I'll share with other people. And guys, I, I want to say to you that what we do is we find that sin in our life, we confess it, we repent of it, we give it to the Lord, and then we ask the Lord to fill us up with his Holy Spirit. And then we go out and tell other people about that forgiveness. That is what God's called us to do. It's not a recommendation it's not an, an option as a believer. We are called as men of God to share the love of Christ with the people he's placed us around. Look at verse 14. It says, save me from, my, from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteousness, uh, in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I want you to look and see what he says in verse 14. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I am in the worship center and I, I'm, I'm thinking about what I've got to do next. I'm thinking about somewhere else and I find myself in the middle of a time where it's a worship service where we're singing to the Lord and I'm just not even really singing. And if I am singing, I'm just moving my lips and I, I'm, I'm, I'm letting words come out, but I'm not really worshiping a holy God. And I sometimes just really get convicted about it and find myself saying, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. This morning I got up and I, I, I played a song five times that I just kept playing over and over. I sent it to Drew Tucker this morning. It's one that he sent me a couple times. And I said, Drew, it's that, it's that song by Brandon Lake called Gratitude. And if, you, if you don't know it, you've got you've to listen to it. But I just played it five times this morning. I just kept singing to the Lord. And there's a part in there that says, I lift up my hands. And it was just a worshipful moment for me this morning just to worship the Lord. And then I went out and I walked my dog. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's got a big manly dog, you know, a big, like, Great Dane or something like that. We've got a, we've got a schnoodle. As a man, it's tough to say that word. She is a mix between a miniature schnauzer and a poodle. She's about 12 pounds, and so me walking that dog down the road gets a lot of looks. And this morning, I know I was getting looks because I've got my phone in my pocket playing that song. And as I'm walking my dog, she's just going crazy or everything. I've got my right hand raised up in the air, and I'm singing that song this morning. And I realized this morning, Lord, you are so worthy. If you've never do another thing for me, you have been way too good to me. Because you have plucked me out of the miry clay. You have set my feet on a solid rock. You have forgiven me. You have saved me. And I have not deserved it. David has reached a place where he says, Lord, if you'll do these things, then open my mouth and I will sing praises to you. The last thing you do is you sing forth his praise. You sing forth his praise. Guys, if there's anything you get from tonight, I want you to get this. God uses broken people. He uses broken 
people. What did it say in verse 17? The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Many of us don't ever want to come to a place where we're broken. That's exactly the place God wants to get us. I look all across the Bible and I look at the men that God has used. I want you to think about Peter for just a moment. Peter is a disciple of Jesus. Peter walked on water. Peter watched Jesus feed the 5,000. Peter saw Jesus heal every infirmity you could ever imagine. Peter watched Jesus cast out a demon out of the demoniac. And the Bible says, and then he was in his right mind. Peter watched that happen when they clothed that man for the first time in years. Peter watched the blind see. Peter watched the lepers who were cast out be healed and be able to come back into the community. Peter watched all of these things. Peter heard Jesus himself say that he was going to die and that three days later the temple was going to be rebuilt. And yet when it came time for Jesus to be put to death, Peter denied even knowing him. Not only did he do that, but less than 24 hours prior, Jesus told Peter he was going to do it. He said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's, not me, Lord. I'm not going to do it. I wouldn't do it. Peter denies him once. You would think a bell would go off in his mind. Oh, yeah, well, I'm definitely not going to do that three times. I may do it twice. I'm not going to do it three times. Then a second time. Then a third time. And then he hears the rooster crow. And he goes out and he weeps before the Lord. He's broken. And then we come to Acts. And Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches the word of God and over 3,000 people get saved. Don't tell me God can't use a broken man. We look at David. David has been immoral. David has lied. David has cheated. David has had somebody murdered. And God continues to use him because he comes to a place where he's completely broken. And I want to say to you guys, God uses broken people. There are people in this room, there are men in this room who right now are saying, God can't use me. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've done. Here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter. Because no matter how big your sin is, Jesus already paid for it on the cross. And he's already forgiven you if you will only repent of that sin. Confess it before the Lord and receive that forgiveness in your life. And so guys, here's my encouragement to us tonight. And here's my challenge to us tonight in the last four minutes. Here's my challenge. I want to challenge you to take 30 minutes this week. I know you say, I don't have 30 minutes. I need you to find 30 minutes. I need you to find 30 minutes where it's just you. I don't care if you go in the woods and you hunt. I don't care if you go and fish. I don't care if you get in your car and you drive down a back road. I don't care if you go to a break room at work where it's just you. I don't care if you have an office and you shut the door for 30 minutes. I don't care if you get up 30 minutes. I don't care. But I need you to take 30 minutes, get alone with the Lord. And I want you to get still and silent before him. And I want you to read Psalm 51. And I want you to read it slowly. And at the end of it, I want you just to say to the Lord, Lord, you know everything I've ever done. 
And maybe he brings a sin by name to mind, and I want you to call it out. But I want you to walk through these things and say, Lord, forgive me. Confess them. Lord, forgive me. I want you to say, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I want you to say to the Lord, Lord, allow me to share that forgiveness with somebody else this week. I did this this past week, last Thursday, in preparation for today. And I went to the store, and I met a man named Trey who was dying and going to hell. And I shared the gospel with him. And at the end of it, this is what Trey said. I don't think I believe that, but I'll certainly think about it some more. And I had a little Bible in my truck, and I gave it to him, and I asked him to go read some out of the book of John. And I wrote my phone number in it, and I said, Trey, if you'll call me, I'd love to discuss this more. And I walked away from that saying, Lord, I did what you told me to. I really wanted Trey to get saved. And the Lord basically said to me, Derek, it's not up to you what he does. It's just up to you to be obedient. And so, guys, I want to challenge you this week to take 30 minutes, get silent before the Lord. We don't like silence, and we rarely get silent. But I want you to get silent before the Lord. I want you to ask the Lord to show you anything in your life that you need to confess. I want you to do it. Ask him to restore the joy of his salvation. And then I want you to find somebody that day and share that forgiveness with them. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get with the guys at your table in the last couple minutes you have. I want you to pray for them that this week, the devil would not keep them from those 30 minutes. That every man in here would find 30 minutes, circle it on their calendar, and they would make it happen. Here's the deal. Anytime we say we're gonna get serious about the Lord, the devil's gonna throw everything he can at us, and so we're gonna pray against that, okay? So I want you to pray over the minutes at your table, that we'll find 30 minutes to do that. And then, guys, next week, we're going to come back for our last Wednesday night together, okay? We're going to have ice cream. We're going to spend a little bit of time around the tables, and we are going to look at David's last words to Solomon on his deathbed, and it's some of my favorite words in all of Scripture when we see the instructions that David gives to Solomon, okay? So pray over the guys at your table, then you're dismissed.